Hello and welcome to DIT ON, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brody, and today I have a very special guest who has actually been a member of the RNA for over 35 years, Terry Catamol. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted you're here. So we've been trying to get this in the diary for quite some time now, so I'm thrilled that we can finally see each other. Uh, and I can hear some of your stories, especially from some of the notes that you've sent me. I'm very excited, um, especially for our listeners to hear some of those. Terry, do you, for those that might not know you, do you want to tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your career? I really wanted to be a doctor when I was a, a lad, mm. and uh, but ended up joining the Navy as a result of a, a friend of mine at school who took the entrance exam to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth and he came back to the school on a visit to talk to the sixth form about uh, joining the Royal Navy and there he was in his uh, blue suit, eight gold buttons, white cap, big gold badge and all thoughts of becoming a doctor went completely out <laughs> of my mind and so I ended up uh, at the age of 16 at the Royal Naval College. Oh wow. What was it about what he said that, that changed your mind? It wasn't what he said, it was what he looked like. <laughs> so you wanted the uniform I, more than anything? I, I thought that that would uh, guarantee me lots of very good lady friends. <laughs> and did it? Yeah, um, sort of, yes. <laughs> brilliant, that's brilliant. So had you decided on a branch then when you, when you went to Dartmouth or... You know, was there anything specific you wanted to do? Yes, I wanted to go to sea and drive ships. Okay. Uh, in other words, become a seaman officer. Yeah. And uh, that's where my career path took me. Yeah. And it took you down the path of torpedoes and anti-submarine um, warfare, warfare yes. quite a lot. Yeah. Was that yes. by choice or was that something you were particularly interested in? Something I was particularly interested in, having been in a couple of smaller ships which uh, A had torpedoes fitted and B had sonar as well uh, that being the I suppose the major part of the specialization was the anti-submarine bit hmm. the torpedoes being the weapons with which you uh, tried to hunt the submarine and before that so I just wanted to touch on a subject as well you actually lived through world war ii you were four when it started yeah, I was, I was, the day war broke out i was four <laughs> i was four years old what can you remember i can remember living in bristol and uh, horrific bombing taking place uh, i can remember playing on bomb sites the days after attacks had taken place because as young lads used to collect what was called shrapnel mm. which was the uh, remains of exploded bombs uh, and you had to see who could get the biggest collection of pieces and uh, and also I remember being evacuated away from Bristol during the heavy bombings of 1941 and 42 uh, I was sent to with four school friends to a little village of called Croscombe in Somerset 
on, onto a farm, which was absolutely delightful. There was no such thing as food rationing at all. And we had a wonderful time, carefree, going to school during the day, leaving school in the afternoon, playing in the woods, uh, plenty of food, plenty of free time, absolutely wonderful. Away from the horrors of Bristol and the bombings. Yeah, wow. But quite a shock, actually, yeah. to go back to it. Uh, what was when, it? When the bombing in Bristol East. Yeah, what, what was it like when you went back? <laughs> a bit of a mess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which took a long time to recover from. But then we made it and uh, made it to the end of the war. And I, I well remember the V Day on the 8th of May, 1945, Victory in Europe Day. I think that was probably the first time that I became what's known as tipsy. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were you? I, I would have been um, nine then. <laughs> Definitely meant to be a sailor then. <laughs> <laughs> and what about your parents, Terry, while you were away on the farm? Uh, well, my, my uh, father had um, tuberculosis and wasn't able to join the army, but he, he became what was called an ARP, Air Raid Precautions Warden, um, looking after people uh, until they went into the, the shelters when, when problems started, um, recovering people from damaged buildings. Um, my mother was a stay-at-home mum, looking after me and my younger brother throughout the war. She never went to work. I, I think she probably did some war work like uh, women's voluntary service, uh, providing meals and clothing, etc., for for poor people who who'd been bombed out of houses, things like that. Hmm. Oh wow! It sounds so horrific to have gone through something like that. I mean, we're going through, you know, an unprecedented time at the moment with coronavirus, but that's nothing compared to what it was like during the war. Yeah. Funnily enough, I think uh, wartime was probably slightly better than the lockdown period because lockdown, you couldn't go to the pub, you couldn't go to the theater, you couldn't go to the cinema, you mm. couldn't go and visit friends. Whereas you could still do all these things during wartime, the theaters made a point of staying open and, and providing entertainment like the cinemas and schools went on as normal as normal as, as could be under the circumstances yeah so in many ways it was a rather more <laughs> occupied and interesting mm. distance rather than the shutdown that one experienced over the last 18 months yeah yeah, that's a very good point. And what, what, if any, were your thoughts on the military during the war? You know, I know you wanted to be a doctor and you didn't want to be a service person until till the speech at the school, but did you have any thoughts about the military then? Um, funnily enough, I was always a fan of the Royal Air Force because <laughs> in the Battle of Britain in the, uh, I think it was 1941, wasn't it? Something like that in June. 
or no, September, it was September 41, um, we would see fighter planes attacking German aircraft over Bristol in, in daylight raids. Mm. Germans carrying out daylight raids. And uh, I thought it would be wonderful to be a fighter pilot. In fact, at one early stage in my naval career, having done a, an a acquaintanceship course with the fleet air arm, I was going to be a naval fighter pilot until I got home and told my wife that that's what I was going to do. And she said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> and uh, which is why I became a TAS officer. <laughs> <laughs> probably, a bit, probably a better route. Um, yes, yes. But no, I had a lot of admiration for, for all three services. They, they did a, a tremendous job, which can never be underestimated. Mm. And for which everyone should be eternally grateful. I agree. I agree. So going back to joining up at Dartmouth then, I mean, when you went through, it was probably very different um, to when I went to Dartmouth a few years ago. Okay, what is there anything in particular that sticks out in your memory of your time there? <laughs> you may not believe this, but at the age of 18, on my very last night at the college, I was bent over the back of a chair with my trousers down and given six swipes of a cane as thick as my little finger. Oh my goodness. We'd had the end of term ball hmm. and four or five of us were caught smoking in one of the cadet captain's cabins, which we weren't allowed to do. But hmm. We were caught by the duty officer, lined up outside and whack, 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 whack. But uh, Dartmouth generally uh, changed my entire life. Uh, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, taught me self-discipline, reliance on others, um, ambition, mm. all, the, all the things which got me to where I am today. And I wouldn't be the man today if I wasn't, hadn't joined the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and Dartmouth was tough. There's, there's no doubt about it. But uh, I mean, you, don't, you join, don't join the military to lead a soft life. You join it to learn to kill people. And that was the, the whole object of one's training in, in the services was to learn to kill the enemy. And by doing that, you were protecting your people and your country. Um, sport played a great part there. I played mm. a lot of rugger and a lot, a lot of cricket. Hated sailing, though. Really? Yeah, hated sailing. Uh, but we were made to do it. And there's nothing worse than sitting in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, on the river dart in a small dinghy in spring with a howling hooligan going on around you, getting soaking wet and cold. Mm. If it wasn't that, it was out in the mouth of the river in a, in a cutter, uh, lolling about in an oily southwestern swell, feeling as sick as a so-and-so and <laughs> I said to myself Terry if this is sailing I don't want to know any more about it <laughs> and throughout my life with my three children were always on to me to uh, dad come on let's let's get a boat and we can go sailing uh I always managed to find some excuse for not <laughs> doing it uh, yes yeah, sport there did not include sailing no you know, it was a good education as well 
because having gone there at the age, just the age of 16, I hadn't taken any O-levels or I don't forget what they were called in those days, O-levels or A-levels because mm. I have no educational qualifications, would you believe? Wow. Um, an interesting point is you to get into Dartmouth, you had to get a 60% pass mark in mathematics. Yeah. Yours truly got 60.5% to pass. Oh, wow. You, you had to take a passing out exam. The pass mark in mathematics then was again 60%. And guess who got 60.3%? <laughs> mathematics was never my strong point. But there again, you see, as, as a midshipman, I, I had a, a very strong interest in in navigation mm. and in the, the cruiser I was in as a midshipman out in the, in the West Indies. I was not what, what was known as the um, navigator's doggy. In other words, I was I helped the navigator do his work. Yeah. As a result of a year doing that, I got a first class pass on my lieutenant's exam as a midshipman simply due to my interest in navigation oh, wow. and other subjects yeah <laughs> amazing yeah i mean 60.3 and 60.5 it's no wasted effort is there if it's a pass is a pass i'm i'm economic economical with effort <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned there that you went to the west indies what was that like then well you were about 18 you oh, just terrible. Thought, terrible. Just <laughs> terrible i bet it was awful how did you manage <laughs> I don't have no no idea how I managed, <laughs> but no, it was a a wonderful experience. Uh, we were based at Bermuda, in oh, the wow. cruise, uh, which was the flagship of the American and West Indies Station, with Admiral Sir John Stevens, and we did three major cruises: one all the way around the West Indian Islands, one through the Panama Canal, down the west coast of South America, round the south Cape Horn and up the east coast and back to Bermuda. And the other one was back through the canal again and onto the west coast of the States, up as far as Esquimalt in Canada. Wow. With Los Angeles and Francisco and uh, San Diego and Santa Barbara in between. And Acapulco in Mexico. Oh, now you're showing off. Yeah, I mean, so it, <laughs> how long were you on that trip for then, the West Indies trip? Um, we spent uh, 13 months out in the West Indies. Wow. Yeah. And uh, out of a total of 16 months as a midshipman, and then the other spells either side were, were back in England doing uh, courses and hmm. learning to be an acting sub lieutenant, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> And had you met your current wife, your wife at this point? Uh, yes, yes. And how did she feel about you being away? Um, we had our own friends, as as you might say, when okay. we, were, we were apart because we had no commitment at that stage. But we met when we were we were fifteen years of age. Fifteen years of it. And how old were you when you married then? Twenty-one. Wow. And I had to get uh, my captain's permission yeah. to marry because officers were discouraged from joining under the age of 25 because they thought it might interfere with your, with your career. Oh, right. I don't think it did. 
So after your, you know, very, very tough trip around the West Indies, what and what happened next? You said that you had local, local acting sub-lieutenant. So yeah. It's, yeah. So it's a little Not bit local, different. Just an acting. Acting. Acting sub-lieutenant. So how did you then qualify to be a sub-lieutenant? Uh, you did. Um, we did uh, two terms at the Royal Naval College at Greenwich. An introduction to a university career where you did uh, academic subjects, in, obviously including naval history, and learnt to enjoy life in London, which was not on the official curriculum, but uh, <laughs> it did happen. Um, and then after, after the time at Greenwich, six, I suppose that was about eight months, we had um, eight months as acting sub-lieutenants doing courses on gunnery, communications, um, TAS, mm. uh, flying, uh, supply, all the various specialisations. It gave you a taster of what... Uh, one could expect to come across in the service. Hmm. And I suppose my time at Vernon, where we did the, the torpedo and anti-submarine sub-lieutenant's course, probably fired my imagination and ambition to become a, a TAS officer. And that was in 1957. Wow. At Vernon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that, the, I think the process hasn't changed that much, Terry, to, to nowadays, it's just, you know, maybe the timescales and stuff are a bit different. Just trying to think of when the young officers used to come on board um, ships that I've been on and they would spend time with each of the different areas and different yes. departments of the ship's company just to get a, a feel for things. So yeah. tradition is kind of, you know, still still there in many ways for that, for that kind of way of learning and training, which is good. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, and and a, I think a very necessary part of, growing up as a as a young officer mm. as far as i'm concerned it was a, it was a well-rounded education uh leading to the final commission as a sub-lieutenant in her majesty's fleet as they said as my uh, uh commission states yeah <laughs> uh yeah and from from then on i embarked on on a life at life at sea in various ships and I think you've probably got the list in front of you, like mm -hmm. Wake, Duncan, Wakeful, etc. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so many ships. And also, I was going to ask, so anti-submarine warfare officer um, was kind of your trade, but correspondence officer, what what did you have to do for that? Well, that, that was like being the captain's secretary, because in a small ship, they didn't carry a pusser. Ah, Except the, the leader of the squadron would carry a supply officer. They call them logistics officers these days, I yeah. believe. Yeah. But uh, still a pusser. But um, so I was dealing with um, the official ship's mail, mm. uh, dealing with pay, um, dealing with the paperwork regarding defaulters for the, for the captain, and doing everything that a supply officer would do. Mm. Um, and so the subs course that one had done during that time uh, stood stood you in good stead yeah. uh, for that particular job. On top of that, you, you had to remember you were a seaman officer, so you were required to do watchkeeping duties. 
and get your watch keeping certificate. Uh, and uh, life went on at sea after that. Yeah, sounds like a very busy, a bit very busy time, kind well, of two jobs. Yes, well, I, I think in in the navy, if you went to a ship, you never did just one job. Mm. You always had a subsidiary job to look after, like uh, in in the Ark, for instance, my final ship. Uh, maybe get onto that later. But I, in addition to being the TAS officer for the Ark. I was the NBCD officer. Uh-huh, yeah. All right, and I was also what I might call the, the Lou Grade of Art Royal because I ran the, the ship's closed circuit television system, mm -hmm. uh, providing entertainment. We're, we're, we're ro rolling ahead a bit, I think. Um, going, going, an interesting thing which happened when I was in the Wakeful, which was the, my third ship, as, as, and I was a lieutenant by this stage, mm -hmm. was that we buried uh, Countess Mountbatten at sea in, in HMS Wakeful. We didn't bury her in Wakeful. Mm. We carried her coffin to 20 miles south of the Nab Tower from Portsmouth wow. in February 1960, because she died in Borneo the week or 10 days before and it expressed a wish to be buried at sea. And we, we took her coffin on board uh, in Portsmouth and then steamed out to south of the Nab Tower, accompanied by the, an Indian destroyer called the Krishul, which uh, was there in honor of the Mount, Mount Batten himself having been the last Viceroy of India, as, as you well know. Uh, and that was a very, very moving occasion with uh, Mountbatten, Prince Philip, Prince Philip's mother, Princess Alice on board, um, the Mountbatten daughters, and I think that was prob probably it, and, wow. uh, and Royal Marine Buglers. It was a very moving occasion. Mm. And the Archbishop of Canterbury actually gave uh, Carried, carried out the committal at sea. Um, I, I was officer of the watch at the time, so I was really in, involved in getting the ship in the right position mm. to, to commit Lady Mountbatten's body to the deep, as we did. Yeah, wow. An interesting sideline. And uh, after that, of course, after the wakeful, I went out to the Royal Malayan Navy. You did? On loan as, as a, a youngster. And that was an, another experience, entire experience altogether. Yeah. How long I were had, you there? Uh, two and a half years. Wow. Uh, with my family as mm. well. Yes. Uh, the, uh, we travelled out uh, to Malaya in the SS Chusan. Uh, in those days, they didn't fly you out. They, they took one, one of the attractions that made me volunteer for the Royal Land Navy was the fact that they gave you a first class sea passage from the UK out to Singapore. Oh, nice. And that was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in the, the Malayan Navy, we traveled out with another lieutenant and his family. And our, our jobs there were. 
basically, it was a young Navy, Malayan Navy, uh, teaching their, their young, young officers how to drive their ships. Because as soon as we arrived, we were given command mm -hmm. of a ship and, uh, and uh, a Malayan officer whom you took under your wing. What type, uh, of, what type of ships did they have, Terry? The very small ships. The, oh, okay. uh, they had inshore patrol vessels and um, inshore minesweepers and one coastal minesweeper, and that was it. Oh, wow. Sorry, that's my clock oh. <laughs> in the background. Yeah, and the, uh, apart from the training job, our main job as uh, driving these ships was to carry out anti-piracy patrols in the Malacca Straits, because piracy was and remains a problem out there now. And it was the Indonesians who used to carry out the acts of piracy. Hmm. They'd be smuggling rice across to Malaya and taking rubber back, not rubber, but the, the stuff you make rubber from, like mm. the latex stuff, and taking that back, or highly illegally. Mm. It's profitable for, for both ends of the chain. But on the way, if they came across a fisherman, a Malayan fisherman, they would hijack him, take him over to Indonesia and demand a ransom for him. And if the ransom was not forthcoming, not forthcoming, they would send him back bit by bit, a finger or an ear, and usually the family paid up. Yeah. <laughs> we, we weren't allowed to fire directly at these, uh, these pirates. Or in any case, I mean, my little steamer, could do 11 and a half knots downhill with a wind behind it. So, oh. and the pirates had uh, big outboard engine boats, which would do 45 knots. And there was not a hoping thingy of catching them, but we weren't allowed to fire at them because that would create an international incident. So mm -hmm. what I used to do was to, we, we had Oerican guns on board. I used to tell the, uh, the gun crew to carry out practice firing in the general direction of the fleeing pirate, but mm. make that you were aiming a cable ahead. <laughs> uh, they soon ran away. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And wow. uh, we never ever caught one. Never no, ever. I was going to ask if you caught one. Well, I suppose if they're that fast, you won't know. But what no. about boardings and things like that? If you had caught them, did you have teams to do that? Or yeah, we carried we carried small arms and. Yeah. Uh, um, they, they would only have a crew of two or three people. Oh, uh, right, okay. Our, our little ships only had crews of about 15, 15, and you could put a boarding party of five people uh, uh, because we could go alongside in, a, in the very small ships we were in, if yeah. we ever caught them. But, Obviously, uh, yeah. We did, but, uh, so we never had the thrill of uh, catching them, but uh, it was uh, interesting because I had an all-Malay crew and one of the things that we did as soon as we arrived in Malaya was to go on a, a six-week intensive and um, language course to learn Malay, which we did because basic Malay is a very simple language and easy to learn, but writing it is very difficult and very mm. complicated because they have Roman script and, and Arabic script as well, which I never mastered either, either of them. And of course, you had to have Malay in order to manage your ship, hmm. and the captain of the ship. 
because the only other person who spoke any sort of English would be the coxswain, who would be your, in the very small ships, the, uh, uh, apart from the other officer, but he, they were only on board the inshore minesweepers, the coxswain would be able to translate, so it was much easier mm. to do it yourself. And uh, my uh, ship's company were very amused as, with me because I used to take my sword to sea with me, and as soon as we were clear of Johor or the Straits of Singapore and going up the Malacca Straits on patrol, I would unsheath my sword and keep it on the on the bridge. Yeah. And uh, if we we did we did one exercise once with a, with another uh, one of our ships, and uh, we did this little operation where we tried to catch one of them. We the other the other ship would be running quietly and we would be very noisy and uh, we'd get within sight and I'd take up my sword and wave it over my head and say, up an atom, lads. <laughs> in Malay, of course. In Malay. Can you remember what it is in Malay? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd have to have to look up my uh, my records because um, I, I've written written the story of my life in the Malayan Navy. Uh, down somewhere or other. I was I was hoping to find it, but then I've got lots of stories written down, which uh, oh wow, gradually putting together. Yeah, are you into... writing a book or? Well, that has crossed my mind. But, uh, I mean, my children and grandchildren keep saying, "Dad, Grandpa, write it all down for us." So I, when I get the odd moment, I I jot down a few ideas. Yes, and, uh, yeah. My, my family absolutely loved it in Malaya. It was a bit hard to begin with. A, a, a wrench in, into a foreign country and uh, living in a hotel for a couple of weeks but once they got settled down they absolutely loved it in fact eldest son who would have been about three then uh, went to a, a local school in Johor Bahru where we lived just across the causeway from Singapore hmm. and he learned to speak Chinese oh wow because <laughs> he got very friendly with a, a Chinese girl at school <laughs> I mean, simple Chinese phrases, but uh, yeah. I mean, we could talk, talk to the, uh, we had an armor uh, who was, uh, no, sorry, the cook boy. We had a cook boy who was Chinese and he could talk a little to the Chinese cook boy, which was interesting, but uh, I mean, the children loved it out there. Yeah, it, I bet. It was warm and we were by the sea and, uh, but no sailing. No, no sailing. sailing. No, no, we don't like sailing. <laughs> Oh, that sounds amazing. And where where did you live? What you said you lived in a hotel for a couple of weeks, but then what did you have a house or we we had a, a married quarter. Okay. Which no no not a married quarter, um, a married hiring they called it, but it was a a um a bungalow in Johor Baru, which the the Navy paid for. And then after about uh, 10 months there, we moved into the Royal Malayan Navy barracks where they had married quarters. So, uh, okay. Which was uh, which is better in the long run. Mm. Uh, and and safer, I suppose. Not that we felt in any danger living in Johor Bahru because in those days there was no anti-British feeling and there was no them and us feeling. Mm. Uh, we used to mix with with um, all sorts of people and live their lives and uh, much the same as we did in, in in France where that's another story isn't it <laughs> <laughs>
So that must have been quite, was it quite hard to come back to the UK after that and go back to the normal Navy for you? Um, not really, because it was a, I came back to do the long TAS course. Mm. So that was another, another challenge ahead of me. And we, we bought our first house at that stage um, and got settled, settled back into the English way of life. Mm. Okay, so after your, um, your course, you went to Nine Mine Countermeasure Squadron. In the Persian Gulf, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a very interesting time because I was the, the squadron, squadron Taz there and also uh, the CEO of, of Chawton because mm. the, the uh, leader of the, the squadron was uh, the captain of Chawton, but he never spent all his time there. So I was appointed as, as captain of Chawton when he wasn't around, oh, wow. uh, which is a uh, very, very interesting time. In fact, I brought the ship to Bahrain from Singapore, flew out to Singapore and drove Chawton back to, uh, back to Bahrain. There were one or two other people with me, by the way. <laughs> You took some ship's company with you. Yes. Yeah, that, that was an interesting time. Uh, and it, that, that was a, another very good time. for I, The family came out. Yeah. Illegally, of course, because being uh, a, year, a year's appointment to the, to the Gulf, hmm. it was not a married accompanied job, but uh, courtesy of the Royal Air Force and their... Their charter flights, Robbie and the children came out for nine pounds. Wow. The whole family for nine pounds. Yeah. Uh, uh, how long for? Uh, they stayed for about six months, I think. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Six months, might, might have been four months. I, I can't remember now, but uh, th that was good experience. For yeah. Them. Well, because the, the children went to school out there and they had a chance to meet a, a different culture again from the yeah. Malayan one, from the British one, to to um, an, Arab an Arabian system. And they they had lots of uh, um, Arabian friends through through going to school. Although, although they went to uh, uh, a Royal Air Force school, there were local children there as well. Yeah. So there was an, there was an actual school there? Run by the Air Force, was there? From, uh, yes. Wow. Yeah. It was good. And the, in Bahrain, did you say in that? In Bahrain, one? yes. And the, the other two went to uh, uh, schools run by by nuns, I think. Yeah. Uh, Catholic schools. Um, so... They were immersed in in the in the local culture and uh, life generally as well. Yeah, it sounds remarkable. Yeah, jealous. I'm really, really jealous, Terry. <laughs> and of course, we visited places like um, Iran. Mm. Uh, we used to, we used to work regularly with the Iranian Navy on on minesweeping exercises, and also with um, uh, a bunch of hooligans called the Trushwell Omen Scouts, which were expatriate 
British army personnel uh, who formed part of the Sultan of Oman's uh, armed forces. Right. And they were, um, I suppose, sort of like the the long range desert group, which operated during the war in North Africa, or latterly the, the SAS. Uh, they used to get up to uh, all sorts of skullduggery, but uh, uh, we used to take them around from place to place occasionally, um, but also play them at Rugga. And my, that, in fact, was the last time I played Rugga was uh, I'm just checking on, on the year. That would have been in 1966 in, in Bahrain. Wow. We played the True Shaloman Scouts at rugby, rugby in Bahrain. And we lost, as far as I remember, 100 nil. <laughs> no. Yes. I was going to say, did, did you win? Did you but... not? It, was, it was an horrendous score. <laughs> We'd come in from a, a three-week minesweeping exercise. Mm into Bahrain, these soldiers had come in from the desert where they'd been doing what soldiers do in the desert. And of course, they were fit as fleas and we hadn't had any exercise at all. And they, But we had a good party afterwards. Oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure yeah. they didn't let you live it down either. But uh, all, all part of the fun we used to have. Yeah. Maybe. Yes, I, I, I look back and think of my time in the Navy and one of the predominant memories is the fun hmm. I used to have. Yes, yeah. same. absolutely. So shall we talk about the Ark then? Yes. So you joined the Ark Royal in 1970, June the 1st, 1970. That's it. As the torpedo anti-submarine officer. Yeah. So it's your career before then is all small ships. Yes. And then you I join do. an aircraft carrier. <laughs> I must point out here that uh, prior to joining the ARC, I'd been earmarked as the gym, the first lieutenant of HMS Minerva and a, um, a medium range sonar fitted ship and hmm. would have suited me down to the ground and being first lieutenant which would have been a step up the ladder hmm. shortly before i was due to join minerva the appointer rang me and said um sorry chum it's all changed the taz that we were going to appoint to art royal no the taz we have appointed to art royal has gone sick with a rather nasty form of cancer. Oh, God. And we need to find a TAS officer quickly. And you've been specially selected. <laughs> Thank you very much, said I. I don't want to go. And I remembered the old phrase, always obey the last order. Mm. Not go wrong. So I joined the ARC on the 1st of June, 1970, as you said, as, the, as a TAS officer. And hmm. uh, within a, I think, a month of joining, the then NBCD officer was um, asked to leave the ship. And the captain sent for me and said, Taz, 
you're now the NBCD officer as well. And this was just before, three weeks before, uh, a final inspection was due down at Portland where we were completing workup. Oh, wow. And that was a challenging time. Hmm. However, I managed to uh, get us through the, the work up on MBCD, aided by an absolutely marvelous team of guys, uh, especially the chief petty officer, who was the, the, the I can only call him the, the MB, MBCD bosun. He was mm. a, a wonderful guy and took hold of my hand and led me through and was, was a stalwart. I, I wish I could remember his name, but I can't to this day. But without him, I would have failed. But in fact, due to his efforts, we had a, a red recommend out of, the, out of the, um, the inspection and also for the TAS department as well, uh, because that was very small because she only had a, a tiny 147 mm. sonar, which was uh, really Second World War stuff. And uh, I was actually born on the books of art to be the TAS officer for the Seeking Squadron, which carried the eight helicopters, carried medium range dunking sonar. So apart from the ship sonar, which was very low down on my list of priorities, I was playing with, for want of a better word, eight helicopters with dunking sonar, which was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, made life very challenging and interesting. I used to fly with them as well. And uh, as a result of that, they eventually made me an honorary member of the squadron. Getting oh. Of the <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That was, so uh, that's one thing which not many TAS officers have experience of these days, mm. of a whole squadron of uh, medium range sonars to play around with. Hmm. And that, and of course, during this time, the incident occurred with the the Russian cruiser. Hmm. Uh, we were in the Atlantic somewhere, North Atlantic, flying, carrying out flying operations during during an exercise, having been shadowed by this uh, this um, Dutch, uh, sorry Dutch. Fauxpas, Russian destroyer for many days and eventually he decided to take it into his head to tease us. So he approached us from our starboard side on our starboard bow from some distance away and it was quite obvious that his intention was to embarrass us, but we were we were flying aeroplanes. We were showing all the right sort of signals. It was, uh, and we were well lit up. It was uh, getting towards dusk, as far as I remember. I may be wrong there, but uh, and this Russian destroyer just kept on coming and coming and coming. He was showing red, of course, which, according to the law of the sea we should have given way to him because he was on our 
starboard side, but we couldn't because we were operating aircraft. We had aircraft in the air who were preparing to land, so we, we couldn't stop flying operations and frantic signals to him had no effect. And eventually we collided and he half rolled over and lost several hands over the side of which there was one fatality. They recovered, recovered the others. Uh, Captain Ray Ligo uh, was exonerated afterwards by a board of inquiry because he'd done everything correctly. And I was ops room officer of the watch at the time. So I, I had a, a good uh, radar view of the, of the whole situation. And uh, I mean, it's quite frightening to see another ship approaching you on your starboard side on a steady bearing, knowing that if he doesn't turn away or you don't slow down or turn, you're going to hit. And uh, we hit him and causing that uh, fatality, which uh, there was great regret, obviously. But, uh, and the Russians, of course, blamed us, which as they, as they would. But uh, and a further inquiry showed that the arc was was in the right. Mm. Uh, yeah. What was not, it like? Not a happy occasion. No. What was it like on board when it hit? Well, you felt the the ship lurched a little. The arc, obviously, because of when a nine thousand nine thousand ton, I think no. 5,000 ton ship hits you going, I mean, she wasn't going very fast. It was only about 10 knots, I suppose, mm. but fast enough to, to cause uh, an appreciable shock throughout the ship, mm. but not enough to throw things off tables or throw people aside or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And no, injury, no injuries were caused to us, but uh, yeah, there were happier times in the ark. We had some lovely visits to North America, going into New York with the uh, fireboats spraying their hoses. Oh, wow. Past the Statue of Liberty uh, and going to uh, uh, Jacksonville in Florida, um, visiting Miami, not the, the ship visited Miami, but um, Fort, Fort Lauderdale, but uh, Jacksonville was where we we birthed and uh, working with another Navy over there. And uh, that, that was a, another lovely time. Not too long away because we were only away for about three and a half months, I think, mm. then. Um, but, uh, and yet the other thing I, I did on board the Ark, I mentioned being the, the blue grade. And mm -hmm. one interesting thing was I, I used to run my own chat program like like Marco, Michael Parkinson but never quite as good as Michael. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> and I, I used to interview people from the from the captain down to the most junior of junior stokers and uh, meet it met and in, over my time there I suppose I interviewed about a dozen or so of the ship's company that, that was a very interesting time. One thing I did though during one leave period in, in Guz, um, I got Miss Milkmaid, 
Miss Devon Milkmaid on board mm. and interviewed her uh, surreptitiously and quietly and put the programme in the can. And the next trip across the pond towards America, I put this out over the ship's uh, television system. And the television studio was inundated with ship's company wanting to meet Miss Devon Milkmaid. Uh, the captain was also on the phone. Taz, what's this woman doing on board? <laughs> I had to explain, but uh, he saw he saw the funny side. Of oh, it. good! He, he was one of three captains I had there: Ray Ligo and uh, um, John Roberts, and um, Desmond Cassidy, um, all of whom made flag rank. Mm. They were all fine captains and enjoyed serving with them all. Enjoyed that. Uh, but getting, getting back to the television thing, that that really took up quite a lot of my time because you can't be flying in helicopters all the time. And they it was only when we were doing a major operation that I spent a lot of time with them. And our own anti-submarine system sort of managed itself. I had a very good team doing that. And so I had a lot of time on my hand and uh, I used to organize what was euphemistically called in the old days, a sods opera. Mm. Does that name exist in the yeah. Navy? Yeah. Oh, it does, it does. So you understand what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not upsetting any, uh, any, anyone, I hope, by using that word. <laughs> and uh, that was great fun because we used to put on a show of about two hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, a two-hour show, and uh, which we we did in um, in uh, America several times, and, uh, and on the way across the Atlantic. And the one of the highlights of the show was a very naughty blue version of um, not Blue Peter. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it now. About the the engine. The engine. Oh no, um, Florence and um, uh, what was it? What was the name of the the, the little steam engine? Uh, I, I shall remember it in a moment. But mm. if I don't, anyway, it was a, a a blue version of that children's program. Right. It was very naughty, but <laughs> it was the the star of the show, I think. Yeah, but we had very good acts. We had magicians. We had guys dressed up as ladies doing uh, doing the can can, uh, <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> for a two hour show, how much rehearsal would you have to put in for that? Well, I mean, a lot a lot of the rehearsals were done amongst themselves. The okay. Bottoms would rehearse. They would um, they would do it themselves. I mean, I I wasn't rehearsing them. I would just gather all the bits together and made certain it, it ran properly and that, that we had the right sort of television coverage because we broadcast it throughout the ship as well. Hmm. Put it in the in the can. But uh, that that was an interesting time as yeah. well. Another of my uh, one of those other jobs that you get. Yes, you. lots of other jobs. Well, lots of hats. Here for it, of course. It <laughs> voluntold. <laughs> Captain just said, Taz, oh, by the way, in addition to NBCDO, 
you're running the television system as well. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the Mist of a Milkmaid, what, what questions did you ask her when you interviewed her? Oh, where she went to school, um, how she liked living in, uh, living in, in Plymouth, how did she become Miss Devon Milkmaid? Um, tell us about your parents, um, like things like that. Generally, oh, yeah. The sort of things that uh, I had my, Michael Parkinson at the back of my brain uh, all the time saying, what would he have said here? <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning, you've been a member of the RNA for over 35 years. Yes. What is it about 25. the RNA? Pardon? I said 25 of those. Yeah. Yeah, spent in France, of course. Mm -hmm. The um, Aquitaine branch of the RNA, which uh, provided a home for people other than the RNA, because out there we, you, you stumbled across, for instance, we had two Royal Air Force people there. We had um, a, a soldier, uh, we had uh, a merchant captain, we mm. had several merchant seamen, we had several um, civilians who had naval connections. So it was, it was a very broad spectrum mm. group of people, which is very, very interesting. And of course, we had very strong relations with the, with the French uh, equivalent of the Royal Naval Association, which was really a combination of the the RNA and the British Legion, but uh, that, that we had a lot of interchange with them. We used to go to their their meetings and dinners, and likewise, yeah. they came to us. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And what is it about the RNA that's important to you then? Keeping in touch with the Navy. Yeah. We have a the motto of the RNA. Once Navy, always Navy. Mm -hmm. And I'm continually meeting people who say, oh, my husband's ex-Navy. I say, no, your husband is not ex-Navy. He is Navy. Yeah. You know, you join. No one's taken it away from you. No one's taken away my commission from me. I still have that. Um, people who took the king's shilling, they didn't get their shilling back. So they, they're still seamen hmm. they're still navy and the rna is 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 like a big family which uh, offers mutual support and help where needed um, through its own charitable efforts and through na associated naval charities for people who are who are hard up but it, it may be for medical reasons it may be family hardship, it may be, I, I don't know, financial problems, marital problems, whatever. They, there is always an avenue for where you can seek help in the, in the Royal Naval Association. And uh, that's what I enjoy about it. Mm. That's so beautifully put, Terry. I love that. And you, you yeah, I mean, you, you're right. It is a, it is a massive family. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Staying connected. I mean, I've only been a, I've only been outside three years, but I miss it. You know, I miss it every day. The, we miss the service. Yeah, the Conrad ship and everything. So yeah, it's nice to still have that connection yeah. with like-minded people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do, do you belong to an RNA branch? No, not. A, I'm just a hate. I'm just HQ. 
HQ. Mm. Well, where, where, where are you based? I'm in Plymouth, but we since I've left, we've been in lockdown. So, but do seek out the the local branch because I'm you will find a lot of like-minded souls there. Absolutely. You don't know. One day, you may be able to help someone, and they also may be able to help you. That's that's the thing worth remembering. Because I was going to say, if you if you were living in the Portsmouth area, I'd invite you to join Portsea Island Branch. Oh, I'd I'd be there. <laughs> I'd be there. Brilliant. Well, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to have you on this episode today, and finally, after all this time, and. Uh, meet you and hear your stories. So thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed talking with you, Jenna.